Welcome back to a new episode. Uh, I'm glad to present Dominic from Digimock. Uh, he has been around for a long time and has been part of well-known projects within the IOTA ecosystem for a long time. Um, and I'm looking forward to hear what kind of updates uh, about it is that Dom and his team are up to these days. Um, welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you. Great to be around. Definitely great to have you guys. Um, before we dive into to the uh, questions... Uh, let's do the usual thing. Uh, let's hear about how you ended up in the crypto space and how you ended up where you are today. All right. Yes. So um, the way I ended up in 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 the crypto space, at least part time, right? Because that's not like my entire focus is not in the crypto space. But I I, I also participate to projects uh, in that ecosystem. And the way I ended up there was basically at everything. Um, we are not a decentralized platform, but our customers kept poking us about, could we do this and that with um, blockchain and DLT partners? And we got more and more interested. And probably about five years ago, um, five, six years ago, we decided we need also to have a blockchain offering. And the approach we took was to integrate with a number of DLTs and blockchains. So basically building a product to facilitate the connection to the opportunities that DLTs have to offer uh, for our customers. And since then, I've been working with a number of partners on different integrations, different pilot and live projects. And it has been super interesting. Yeah. And, and how was it that you became aware of uh, IOTA instead of like Ethereum and all the, all the bigger ones? Yeah, so as we were uh, building up the number, like the, the you know, the partners and, and, um, and the preferred partners we wanted to have, we were looking at um, the requirements from our customers and IOTA was quite interesting. I mean, one point of interest for IOTA was the, the European aspect. We have a number of European customers for whom it was quite important, um, but also other aspects were around um, the fact that IOTA was having um, some kind of a focus on supply chain, which was also close to our, um, to our area of focus. And then one thing that was pretty big for us was um, the ability to do certain transactions without fees. So the fee-less transactions were something that we were very interested in because our customers are very sensitive to um, variable costs for mm -hmm. their applications. And finally, I'd say the, the community, right? I, I actually met a number of um, the IOTA team members in London at several meetups. And just generally, the support of the community was really overwhelming and was, you know, great. And that made us want to work closer with them um, over the years, actually. And mm. it has been great. Yeah, it's a tal talented bunch of people. Um, you said something about that it was your partners that wanted um, the integration with uh, like blockchain and DLT. Um, that's pretty interesting because in my head, it's usually um, like the... He wants building the software, uh, integrates it, and then wants to get partners to use it. But it was actually your partners that wanted you guys to integrate it. Yes, exactly. It was this way around. I was obviously already interested in the blockchain and the DLT space, but it was really a cost, um, you know, push from our customers who were basically 
interested in the blockchain space, we usually we work with our customers in a holistic way to basically provide digital identities for their products and then connect their products to all kinds of applications. And so, you know, they focus on a regular basis on new applications that they'd like to try out. And a number of applications were related to the capabilities of uh, DLTs and blockchains. And that's how we um, started exploring that space for them. Interesting. Um, remind me, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that uh, a bit later. Uh, remind me if in case I forget about that. Um, let's do a little bit of a background uh, around uh, everything in Digimark. Yeah, sure. So basically everything was founded um, by uh, myself and three other co-founders about 10 years ago. Um, in January 2022, it was acquired by Digimark. Um, and so now we are basically part of the Digimark family. And together, the two um, companies basically offer a power, powerful product digitization platform um, inside our product that we call the product cloud. So essentially, we give every single product a unique identity, usually in the, in, um, in the form of a web identity. And that web identity can be used for all kinds of use cases from uh, traceability and um, sustainability use cases to consumer engagement use cases, and also um, quite a strong focus on brand integrity use cases. So basically detecting counterfeits, detecting parallel imports, backdoor goods, um, and different other supply chain inefficiencies. Mm. And is this something that is already being used? Yeah, yeah, it's being used live. Um, we're actually present on, on billions of items already in the world. Uh, one prime example, I mean, grab a, an, a Ralph Lauren item in any Ralph Lauren store in the world and, and look at the color or the label, and you'll see on the label a unique digital identity. That's a digital identity that's powered by, um, by everything. And that's used wow. for all kinds of use cases from authentication to supply chain visibility as well as consumer engagement. So that's one example, but we've been working for a, you know, a number of um, other brands, primarily big brands, because we're after big volumes. Um, that's when our platform really excels. Mm. Like, then I have to run into my closet and check all my shirts after this. Um, you should, yeah. So, so what kind of, you, you mentioned Ralph Lauren and you were aiming big, um, big partners, right? Customers. Um, could, could you name a few of the others? Yeah, sure. So we are quite present in the apparel sector with, um, you know, very large brands of apparel like, um, like Ralph Lauren, another one would be Puma. Then with more boutique brands of apparel, um, a, a great brand we work with is called Another Tomorrow, where we do quite a lot, um, with their digital identities. So apparel is, is one, uh, one of our spaces. Then we are generally into consumer goods, um, so food, um, wines and spirits. Um, we've been working with a number of brands there. Just to give you an example, for instance, we've been working with Movi. Uh, Movi is one of the um, biggest um, salmon um, companies in the world, salmon and fish companies in the world. And we do end-to-end uh, -end traceability on salmon and other types of fishes. Um, at the back of a, uh, a batch level QR code that gives you all kinds of information about the fish, where it came from, et cetera. Um, wow. So yeah, I'd say, you know, 
primarily apparel companies, then um, food and beverage, and generally CPG, so consumer packaged goods with brands like Unilever and, and others. Is it, is it difficult to get like these, like this, these are small brands, this is like worldwide enormous brands. Is it difficult to get them to, to like be part of something like this? Um, it It is getting increasingly easier. Um, I, I won't lie, when we started, it was really difficult. We were basically telling them that by having a unique digital identity on your products, you can enable all kinds of use cases. But just the fact of creating a unique digital identity for their products was a real challenge. Printing challenge, coding and decoding challenges. We're talking about billions and billions of items and any small change um, is a big deal. And these brands, for instance, were not used to serialization. So you, the, the normal way you do um, item identification or, or product identification today is at, the, is at the product level. So you don't go into a unique code per item. Um, so we had to go on a journey with them to be able to, um, to do that at the printing level, at the encoding and decoding level. But quite a few things have changed in the past few years. I think technologies have changed. So now with digital printing and other techniques, it becomes increasingly easier to serialize. There were also on the consumer side, a number of things on the tech that changed. For instance, all consumer phones can read uh, serialized QR codes or serialized NFC tags. So that obviously really boosted um, uh, interactions. And then there are a number of external factors, such as regulations. Uh, there are a number of regulations that are coming up that require serialization of certain items, that require full traceability of certain items. Um, and generally, consumers are becoming more aware and they want to mo know more about the products, not only in a generic way, but in a um, like item way, like where is the item I have in my hands coming from? What's its story? What can I do with it? How can I recycle it, etc. So I think there's a, the time is ripe basically for these type of use cases and brands are getting more and more into it. Hmm. Um, you kind of uh, touched into this topic uh, in the beginning, like when, how and why did you start getting interested in, in uh, working with the um like the crypto space, like blockchain and DLTs? Yeah, so as I said, uh, probably about five years ago, uh, roughly, I need to check exactly, but that's probably what I, uh, when we started integrating with the first partners. Um, and why? Well, because our customers started to get interested in what the blockchain had to offer, in particular in areas like um, traceability and trustable information. We work with certain brands that have sometimes a trust problem with their consumers and being able to back their um, their their uh, data with actual uh, immutable um, data was something that was interesting. So on the supply chain side, so some other reasons were to basically um, build reward programs that were based on blockchain and crypto. Um, and generally, they were super eager to uh, to test the space. There were also retailers that were increasingly asking the brands to participate in their ecosystems, in their blockchain and decentralized ecosystems. So some of the brands were actually constrained to start to adopt uh, blockchain or actually push some of the data to blockchains. 
Mm. And so that's that's how it happened. Um, and then how? Well, basically, we decided we don't want to be a blockchain ourselves. There are, there are enough blockchains out there. There are enough DLTs out there. So we took an approach that we wanted to be blockchain ready, but not blockchain only, we always said. So we built a product called the Blockchain Integration Hub, which basically allows to integrate with a number of our uh, partnering blockchains and DLTs. And we've been running projects for our customers at the back of that. Nice. Um, do you use, yeah, you said you've used different uh, like blockchains. Um, so you have a live product right now on like different platforms or is it like one mainly that you're using? No, we have a we have live products on different platforms, uh, ranging from you know Ethereum to um, Origin Trades, another partner. But um, most of the projects lately, we've been uh, working with IOTA. Uh, but we're trying to remain independent of one particular blockchain or DLT because that's you know in the interest of our customers. The DLTs have different core focus areas deliver different use cases and we want to make sure that our customers can play with with several uh, when it makes sense mm. yeah because that was my next question like um why kind of having on a different uh, platforms instead of having everything in one it's like especially if it becomes um like say iota becomes uh, like the true decentralized um, blockchain or crypto then would it make sense to move everything there? Or is there uh, like a, a backdrop to that? Potentially, yes, but not necessarily. Um, to give you one example, we worked with a with an Italian fashion brand called Alex, and they had two targets with their blockchain play. One of them was they wanted um, full traceability information to be backed by a DLT so that you could really see that the information was provable and immutable. But they also wanted a mechanism to share the data across um, amongst the, the players of the supply chain. And here we used two um, DLTs. We used IOTA for everything that was related to the traceability information and anchoring that information. And then we use Origin Trail for the data sharing because they had a pretty interesting data sharing layer for supply chain data. So we were basically leveraging the best um, of you know two of our partners. I think obviously as IOTA grows, the number of use cases that we can run at the back of IOTA are growing as well. But then you also have these specialized DLTs and specialized blockchain that really are really good at one thing, um, for instance. I don't know, creating tokens for consumer rewards. Um, and and it makes sense sometimes to integrate with these very specific ones to basically get uh, faster to market. Mm. I'm not sure if that's something that can enable on Shimmer as well, but like how the IOTA technology is right now. Um, is it like uh, everything that you guys need or are you guys waiting for something or is it like in a test phase? It has, um, you know, it has grown and evolved quite a bit. Um, and there's a very positive side to that. There's also a um, the flip side to that. Um, when you run a live project, because um, we run actually a couple of live projects in the real world where items are bound to the IOTA blockchain. And when people scan them, we need the blockchain to be up and running. Um, 
And so some of the changes forced us to migrate and re-migrate and, and that wasn't great. But overall, we understand that the, the, the technology has to evolve and you know we're supportive of that because we get more and more use cases, more and more stability, more and more potential. Um, and that's that's great. Mm. Okay, great. So, so you guys are would like smart contracts is supposed to come um, well soon, I guess. Uh, is that something that you guys also are waiting for? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons we needed to work with other partners was the lack of smart contracts in IOTA. So we're we're thrilled about um, what smart contracts in IOTA could bring, and um, and we're looking forward to uh, to start testing that as well. Cool, cool. Yeah, because I was wondering if um, if it was mostly the crypto space that was waiting for the smart contract due to like DeFi and all that. But it's nice to hear that um, that you guys are also waiting for it and will utilize it. Um, okay, next question. Uh, what's a product cloud and more generally, what are digital identities and digital twins? We have had uh, an episode of digital identity, but I was wondering uh, more towards your uh, platform. Yeah, you probably had the episode you had about digital identities and pardon me because I didn't listen to that particular one, but I suppose you had digital identities pr probably for people. Um, was mm. that the focus? Uh, it was a little bit various, but um, I'm interested to hear your uh, like view of it. Yeah, so I, you know, I think um, you can have digital identities for people, for organizations. Our focus is on digital identities for products. Um, basically, as I was explaining before, creating a unique digital identity for each product in the world. And that's what we became over the years experts at, at creating mass scale digital identities. Again, primarily using uh, just a URL for every product. And um, the system that we're using became a, a standard that I had the chance to co-chair. That's the GS1 digital link standard. And so that's a standard way of creating digital identities for products um, in a serialized manner or non-serialized manner as web addresses, which gives access to a whole bunch of use cases. And the product yeah. cloud is basically our, um, our product um, that helps you leverage these digital, digital identities. So not only creating them and managing them, but also um, connecting them to all kinds of applications and hosting the digital twin for the product. So the digital twin is really the digital counterpart of a physical item. And, and it registers everything from and about um, the product. And that's happening in our, um, in our product cloud. And it allows uh, tracking the items live through, um, through the entire life cycle from manufacturing to supply chain to consumers even to recycle and resale. And the product cloud is basically helping orchestrating these different applications. Um, mm. um, let's see if I'm, I'm able to, to like dumb it down to my level a little bit. Um, let's say if I have a Ralph Lauren shirt, right? Um, the shirt gets a kind of a digital identity and with that, it gains a digital twin on the product cloud, right? which it can Absolutely, then be traced yeah. and yeah exactly so, and then i can trace it back like where was it made who who got it and where did it get transported to stuff like that yeah absolutely and i mean in technical terms basically your product gets an api or a set of apis 
and then can be integrated in a number of other applications. It also gets um, some kind of an intelligence layer with analytics and rules engines and machine learning um, in the platform. But yeah, the, the way you described it is is at the core of it is exactly that. Mm, cool, cool. Uh, do the um, Digimark project have any other connection to blockchain and DLT space? Well, I think we already talked about the connection and that's um, we are connecting these digital identities to a large ecosystem of applications, including applications in the DLT and, and blockchain space. Mm. Um, and, and that's how we work. And we work on a partnership ba- basis versus creating our own blockchain. Yeah. Um, you also mentioned that the the uh, interest is is gaining uh, among the uh, the customers these days. Um, why is this the right time for products to get a digital identity? Well, I think we we touched a little bit upon that, but I think there's generally a consumer push. Um, when you create a digital identity, you allow consumers to directly interact with the item they have in their hands. Um, it's really a direct, um, tight link where you basically scan the item and get a um, get get all kinds of information and engagement, consumer engagement about it. And consumers are really demanding um, for that. They're demanding better brand integrity. Um, they do not necessarily want to purchase counterfeits, um, clearly. And they also want um, to make sure that the brands that they like are being held accountable to meet sustainability goals. So there's a really a big push on sustainability from consumers. And, and I think that's one big thing. The other big thing that I mentioned previously are our regulations or upcoming regulations like the digital product passport. And that's one of the latest projects we worked on with IOTA. And finally, there are a number of uh, emerging technologies, as we talked, that really make it right, the right time to interact with products because we can do it at the back of our phones in a very easy way. The brands can now serialize using lots of different uh carriers, you know, QR codes or watermarks, um, NFC tags, RFID tags. So there's really a, a whole breadth of, um, of possibilities to connect products. And finally, there are a number of standards. I've, I've been throughout my career pretty convinced that standards are the right way to uh, boost ecosystems and boost adoption. And I've been working on a number of standards. We talked about the digital link, uh, but there's also another standard that I was pretty active in called EPCIS, where IOTA uh, was also pretty active in the standard. And that's a standard to capture product information. Um, And so, you know, mixing all these elements, I think the time is is really right for a product to get digital identities. Mm, Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, Also, we talked about that in the uh, digital identity episode. Um, but having these technologies integrated would make it quite a lot harder for people to replicate uh, like branders, wouldn't it? To to replicate the products, you mean? Yeah, like like make fake uh, watches, yeah. fake clothing. Yeah, absolutely, and that's that's one of our top use cases, basically to help with brand integrity. We yeah. make it hard for counterfeiters, not only because we make it impossible to, to copy the label, which is which has been an area of focus for years, 
our way of looking at it is to make it impossible to copy the products because of their data. Mm. We do what we call data-driven product authenticity. So we look at all the data from and about the product. We get lots of data points and we look at, um, is it, is it uh, plausible that this product is real? This product is in the right place uh, using techniques such as rules engines, but also increasingly more machine learning. And, and faking the data is very hard for counterfeiters because you need to fake the product, but you also need them to fake the data it's linked to. And that's, that's very challenging because we detect these kind of things. Yeah, but like, is it possible to, to fake the data or is it more or less impossible? Do, do you have to like, I guess most people that create fake clothing doesn't have like an, a very big uh, technical team behind them. More like a garage and a printing press. Yeah, I think you would be surprised. There are yeah. there are an increasing number of uh, very high quality counterfeits, um, and yeah. and counterfeiters are getting more and more sophisticated. Um, but yeah, yeah con- counterfeiting sense. the data is really hard indeed. Yeah, because I've I've been kind of um, wanting this like use case uh, in a broadly manner because. If you go into like the local marketplace, like let's say Facebook marketplace where you can see all the local people selling stuff, uh, okay, uh, you get up a Rolex or you get up a Louis Vuitton bag and it costs, like say the Louis Vuitton costs 200 and uh, no, 2,500 euros, okay? Uh, it's cheaper than the, the store, but how do I know it's real? How can I like... Uh, prove that I'm not getting scammed and it's being sold a $20 bag from Turkey. Or let's say I want a Rolex, which is even worse. I had to pay $25,000 for a watch that I have no idea if it's just a perfect uh, fake or if it's actually the real thing. It would be nice to have some sort of um, trust layer there where you don't have to actually just take his word for it. And because most people... um, like you get a certificate with the Rolex, right? But how can you trust that that's uh, like the, the the real deal? Because if the counterfeiter are good enough, he can make that look just the same as a real one. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. And that's where adding a digital layer makes it harder to counterfeit the, the product. Um, so you need a physical layer where you basically put a marker uh, say, for instance, an NFC tag inside the watch. We're working with a great partner that does exactly that. They're called STIS, and they create NFC tags that get embedded in watches. And then you create the digital identity, which needs to be unique. Um, and then you basically create the data profile in the digital the digital twin. And with all of that, you're getting more and more sophisticated and then it's getting harder and harder to um, counterfeit the product. Hmm. Well, what's an NFC? NFC is a near field communication. So it's it's some kind of a, an RFID tag. Uh, we know it as consumers from our smart uh, from our credit cards. When you tap your credit card, um, that's near field communication. When you tap it on a terminal okay, yeah. or your rail card. But those NFC tags are also embedded now increasingly more into everyday products, especially luxury products. Mm, yeah, I guess, I guess like it wouldn't uh, be like productive to have it in a couple socks for two dollars but if you want to buy an Armani suit right it would be nice to have some form of um, credibility to it absolutely um, it's a cost problem right that's yeah. why 
for lower cost products, you look more at QR codes or digital watermarks. Um, mm. For more expensive products, you can go all the way to NFC, including secure NFC, which has a yeah. an encryption layer as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and one more thing. Um, let's say if I go to my uh, closet right now and I find my Ralph Lauren shirt and it has a QR code, which is supposed to be um, something I can scan and I can see if it's real or not. Uh, if I, like, let's say if I were able to to make shirts, which I'm not, um, let's say if I, if I were, uh, I copy the QR code and use the same QR code on my real shirt or my fake ones. So when someone bought the fake ones, they would get the QR code of a real shirt. How do you, like, stop that from happening? Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, you're, you would probably be a good counterfeiter because you're starting to, you know, to understand the, the, the tricks. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, good. we, and, you know, to, if you copy one shirt uh, at a small scale, we probably won't detect that easily. But if you do it at a large scale, which becomes financially interesting, we will mm. detect it because we will see that a single identity is seen in many places. And that's where our models kick in and we'll oh, start yeah. to detect that there is a problem. When you have one identity that scanned millions of times, then um, there is a problem, right? And that's typically the kind of data points we can generate for our customers. Yeah. And I can imagine those that go that go hard into to fake stuff doesn't do it just to, to make 10 shirts. No, exactly. It's it's in the in the thousands or, or hundreds of thousands, actually. Mm, yeah. Well, that's that's pretty cool. Um, I'm looking forward to see this in widespread. widespread. I will definitely try to to scan my shirt after this. Um, I watched a video from you guys, which should be live uh, once this episode is uh, is going on air. Um, tell us a little bit about your collaboration with IOTA on the digital product passports because that looked very interesting. Yeah, that's that. That is a super interesting project that we had the chance to uh, to participate on with IOTA. Um, so generally, digital product passports are a set of um, of upcoming initiatives by the European Commission. Um, they're part of the Green Deal framework, and their goal is basically to start to have uh, mandatory passports for products. Um, examples of such products are in the textile world, um, where in a few years there'll be requirements to have a digital product passport attached to textile. Um, another example is on batteries for electric vehicles. Um, and you have more and more um, examples where the European Commission is, is trying to deploy these, these product passports. And essentially, they um, allow customers, consumers to get more informed and to make more informed decisions about the products they buy by understanding where they come from, how much resource they consume, what they contain, um, all kinds of this type of information, as well as recycling information. So it's really like a passport, but for a product that the product carries through its um, entire life. And that's it's very exciting because now uh, brands will have an opportunity to actually not only create that um, for their own marketing needs, but also to participate to this general um, um, ecosystem that the European Commission is launching. Mm. And 
um, like just wrap my head around that. Like, let's say, would would my car have a digital product passport, and then the components in the car would then have like digital twins? Uh, yeah, I mean, in the case of electric batteries, the battery itself would have a digital product passport. Uh, your car might as well, but that's currently not in the scope of the first batch uh, from the European Commission. Mm. Uh, first batch of products that will need a passport, the batteries are. So the battery in your electric car would have a digital product passport. It would have a watermark or a QR code or an NFC tag or whatever other technology allows you to to identify this uh, battery. And then you would get through the digital twin all kinds of information. Where was the battery produced? What is the battery containing? What's the footprint, carbon footprint of the battery, etc. Mm. Um, and then also its modules. What modules are inside the battery? Uh, which modules were replaced? By whom? That's also quite important. Was it replaced by a person who was really um, authorized to do so, etc. So really like the digital twin of your of your battery um, through that passport. Would be very interesting to kind of know how much I've already polluted before I actually get the battery in my car. Absolutely. And that's part of it, right? That mm. part of the European Commission's mission is to make this visible. Because today as consumers, we just don't know, right? I mean, no later than today, I was reading that there's a Danish, uh, Danish, um, research um, group that published that to basically um, when you use cotton bags instead of single-use plastic bags to basically make it better from an environmental point of view um, you would need to use the cotton bag 20,000 times um, and, and which is impractical right and so that's just an example as consumers we assume that a cotton bag is better than a single-use plastic bag but it's not necessarily that straightforward. And that's exactly what digital product passports also about, making it um, accessible for consumers so that we can make the right decisions because the right decisions are sometimes non-obvious. Mm, definitely. Um, we also uh, spoke about this a little bit earlier, but you have like many other blockchain partners, like, like what's so special about IOTA, which you already mentioned uh, most about, but also, what's the challenges? <laughs> the challenges of working with IOTA. Yeah. So what's so so special? I mentioned a, a number of things. Um, you know, the, the community and the core team members who are extremely helpful and yeah, big thank for that um, to the team. The fee-less transactions, which for us are are quite important and quite useful. The ability to participate pretty easily, um, be becoming part of the network is very easy. We actually run IOTA nodes and, you know, it's well documented and it's it's quite smooth. Another, ex another big point, which I forgot to mention, is the carbon footprint, generally the energy footprint of IOTA versus other blockchains that or mm. DLTs. That for our customers is tremendously important because you don't want to run a sustainability project at the back of a blockchain that consumes enormous amount of energy for each transaction. Yeah. That is totally counterintuitive and, and counterproductive. Mm. So that's a big deal. And early on, it was a big deal for us. We had customers who were like, well, I'm not going to use Ethereum, um, at least when it's still proof of work, because that would completely kill the purpose of me proving that I'm doing the right thing for the environment. 
Um, so that that was also kind of a big deal, which I forgot to mention when we talked about that that's, before. That's pretty cool that the uh, the projects are also actually aware of the the carbon footprint of Ethereum and say they don't want to use it, even though that's the superior crypto right now. Yeah, I mean they've become increasingly more aware. I think the early projects they were not aware. I I also felt like generally the blockchain community was trying to to. Uh, not necessarily address that issue too much um, mm. in the open, um, but it has become a much bigger issue lately. And you know, the, the, the migration of Ethereum to uh, to proof of stake is an example that yeah, it's gonna be it's gonna be a, a big deal for certain projects, especially sustainability projects. And actually, the European Union. Um, uh, is also putting that as a requirement. You know, the energy footprint of the blockchains they'll work with in the future and the DLT is needs to be um, as small as possible. That's mm. very important. Mm. Definitely. So, and so, what's the challenges for working with IOTA? I think one of the challenges, and I'll be very honest here, is um, it's still a, an ecosystem that's developing. It's developing at tremendous speed, and sometimes that breaks things. And it's fine as long as you're not running production projects. But when you're running production projects, things breaking, data um, uh, disappearing or needing migrations uh, is, is challenging, actually. Mm. Because um, there's, a, there's a tension. I understand all these ecosystems are still developing. On the other hand, we want to start adopting them to prove them, um, prove they can do something useful for the market. But when we do it in the real world and not just as a tiny uh, demonstrator, these things have to live for a long time. Some of the products we, we work with, their digital identity and the data associated with it needs to live for 5, 10, 20, 25 years. Mm. And that's a real challenge. Um, so I look forward, and that's not only true for IOTA, but I look forward to a, a bit more maturity um, of these ecosystems so that we can really rely on them for the long run and not just for um, for short-term mm. applications. Yeah, I can imagine that uh, with all the changes and like different pathways they are going, like we're trying this, okay, we dropped that. Um, becomes it a little bit challenging for, for the people that is working with it, uh, like... Um, like you guys and other partners, because you guys have to keep up to date with what, whatever they are doing and then integrate it and like learn it probably as well. And then just, okay, let's do another direction and then just start over. Yeah, and that's exactly like you describe it. Hmm. Uh, where, and it's, you know, IOTA is not the only partner where we face this challenge. Um, what I'll say for IOTA's defense here is they made some pretty significant changes. Some of them were pretty impactful for us, uh, but the, the the team was always behind us to try to help us finding solutions. So it's not like we're completely alone. Mm. Nevertheless, it's time for us. Um, it thinks breaking for us, which doesn't look great for our customers. Um, so yeah, I look forward to some stability um, as well. Um. So another question, um, I can imagine that this is quite expensive to build. Um, and you also mentioned that the, the European Union is involved. Um, are you getting like funding from, from these projects or are you getting funding from like, the partners or like the EU or? Yeah, yeah. so I mean, some of the projects, our commercial projects are funded um, through uh, 
our customers. Um, some of the projects like the Digital Product Passport project uh, to which we will publish um, uh, the video and I think you'll incorporate the link in the podcast uh, mm, description yeah. uh, are actually um, co-financed by um, the European Commission, namely here the European Blockchain Pre-Commercial Procurement, um, so the yeah, EBSI uh, framework. And so that that's great because it allows IOTA and um, Digimark to research these emerging fields with some funding. Of course, we also have to um, to, to to help uh, developing these projects, and um, it's uh, it's great because it's really a framework where we can test things with some associated funding. And these research projects are great, but I'm always eager also to move them to the next level which the european commission is also eager to to basically start then applying those with real world products um and, and customers and this is the phase we're we're in now we're um we have a blueprint of what i think is a very strong digital product passport offering that combines um digimark identities the product cloud and iota so for me it's like almost like a perfect blueprint of what uh, the digital product passport architecture should be, especially also if you include the standards we work with. Um, and now we're trying to push that to brands and to get brands to pilot it with us. And that's the next phase we're, uh, we're in. Mm, that's super interesting. Uh, you also mentioned before we started this was kind of cool. Um, not sure how, how significant it sounds very cool that the uh, European Union approved the, uh, the podcast. Yeah, yeah, I mean, what part of what they want, obviously, is is uh, for us to promote uh, these kind of operations. They don't do it just to uh, keep them totally closed and secret. Yeah. So they also want now to start to seed, um, to plant the seed in the market that digital product passports are coming. It's, of course, still an evolving framework. So none of what you see in the video is definitive in terms of um, the European Commission hasn't yet regulated um uh the architecture and the framework but it's coming it's coming and it's coming pretty soon like the first um the first regulations should come up in uh, 2024 and the first products with digital product passport should come soon after so nice. we're we're actively working on um on these architectures to be ready when it uh when it hits yeah because do you think that this this would actually like go live like the digital passport and everything around 2024 like yeah, on the, used. yeah, on the first products, it's going to be 2024. Um, textile, I think batteries, if I'm not mistaken, I need to check the exact date, but a few years later. So it's it's becoming real, right? I mean, 2024 is, is not far. And, no. and so, yeah, it's becoming a reality. Um, oh. And I think, you know, brands can take it as a constraint, but I think they should really take it as an opportunity. The brands that do the right things, um, we'll have a mechanism to present that to consumers and we'll be uh, able to really make a difference. Yeah, and I think we will see a rapid increase in uh, products that are using this technology as well, uh, especially with the type of um, like customers that you guys have. You don't have a local store. You have actually worldwide companies like the biggest ones. Puma and Ralph Lauren is like enormous. So if these guys are doing it, then of course the rest want to do it as well, I would imagine. Yeah, no, you're right. It will set the bar pretty high and everyone will have to follow. Otherwise, the, the brands that aren't transparent and aren't providing these kind of digital services, 
will be left behind and um, I yeah. think you're absolutely right. Get behind, get left behind, as I like to say. Exactly. Um, one more thing, our last question here. Uh, you did mention crypto tokens integration or something like that a little bit earlier. Um, do you, like how, in what type of use cases do you use, I use actually crypto tokens? And so we have in the past used them um, uh, for two reasons. One of them was for billing um, a customer loyalty. So a customer loyalty program where when you were scanning um, the, the drinks, it was a, a drink called Fact by a company called Almond. And so um, under the ring pool, you had a unique identity and a unique um, everything now Digimark provided identity. And that would basically grant you a token whenever you were scanning the item. And that token could then be converted into cash, for instance, via PayPal. So you could accumulate them and do lots of interesting things with them. Mm. So it was really a way to implement a... Um, uh, a loyalty program, which, by the way, I learned are extremely hard to implement and cryptocurrencies can really help uh, streamlining and making that very easy to implement or at least easier. That was one example. The other example is uh, when we looked at data exchange, supply chain data exchange, the tokens are used to basically reward um, those who store the data as well as those who basically share the data so it's used as a currency to um, to get some of the data as well as a reward for storing the data mm. but yeah, that like... oh sorry no i was going to say that latter project um stayed um you know at the, at the small scale project we're looking forward to actually experiment that at the larger scale at some point mm. yeah it's uh, it makes sense to to create incentive for the consumers to actually participate in this. Um, because I can imagine most people doesn't buy a shirt and then straight go home, scan the code um, and participate in that ecosystem. Most people just buy it, throw in the drawer, put it on whenever you need it. Like, But if you actually have an incentive for people to share that information, then I believe that that's a good way to do it. If you can actually gain uh, crypto tokens uh, for participating. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a, that's a pretty neat use case. Um, mm. Is this something like would you would you ever uh, um, use like the IOTA token, or do you like see making your own token for this? No, I think we would consider using the IOTA token. Um, we would probably not use our own, but um, I don't know. This depends on on the implementation requirements. Mm. Yeah, because now you should be able to create your own crypto uh, once they uh, release Shimmer, um, yeah. which shouldn't be too much problem. But then again, I don't know. There's probably a lot of regulations uh, towards how to do this, how to implement this. Um, yeah, but it's super cool anyway. I really like the the product the uh, product that you offer. Yeah, and we'll definitely start looking into Shimmer. We're pretty excited about some of the uh, opportunities that are created there. It's some of the bricks that were missing in the in the IOTA DLT ecosystem. So it's great to see these bricks now appearing. Mm, absolutely. Um, so that was everything that I had. Um, is there anything you would like to uh, to add before we end the episode? No, I would just encourage everyone to watch the video. Um, we're also pushing blog posts about the project and you know get more familiar with what digital product passports are. 
And with the blueprint that we created with IOTA, because I think this blueprint is a is a good blueprint of what digital product passport should look like to allow um, you know, some kind of uh, vendor neutrality, use of standards, use of decentralized networks. Um, I think it's yeah, it's just an interesting blueprint that I invite people to uh, to have a look at and contact us if um, anyone wants to pilot um, products that would use digital product passports by IOTA and Digimark. Mm. Do you have a, uh, a Twitter account that people could follow to keep up to date with what you guys are doing? Yeah, so there's at uh, there's Digimark. Uh, that's the company Twitter account. If you want mine, it's Dom Ginnard, D-O-M, and then G-U-I-N-A-R-D. Wonderful. Um, so I encourage everyone that is listening to this, uh, watch the video that they have released. It's super interesting, very well made. It's a short video, so you don't have to, to sit down with Popcorn for, for one and a half hour. Uh, also read the blog post, uh, both from Digimark and uh, the IOTA Foundation. And if you're more interested, uh, if you want to implement this, do as uh, Dom said, reach out to them. They will help you out um, and answer whatever question that you would have liked to be answered. So thank you guys for listening and thank you, Dom, for taking the time to tell us all about what you've, do- what you've been doing. Um, so yeah, get behind and get left behind. Cheers. Thank you.